Today's episode is supported by Vivo Barefoot, whose mission is very close to my heart. There's something incredibly powerful about feeling the ground beneath your feet. It's more than just like walking or running. It's about forming a connection with the earth, a connection that most modern footwear has unfortunately severed. Vivo Barefoot aims to mend this disconnect by making footwear that's wide, thin and flexible, enabling natural movement. Born from a long lineage of cobblers, Vivo Barefoot carries a rich heritage of craftsmanship and a deep understanding of what makes footwear truly beneficial for us. Enjoy the discount code HARVEST15. Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet, an event produced by Athena Advisors and Capital Partners. Main aim is to help rebuild school so these kids don't have to see that condition while they're studying. I know they'll they'll still go home to broken homes, but while they're at least in school, let them have a good studying condition. Peaceful moment. And a better future. And a better future. The other thing is once the school is finished, I hope to build a community center where bring the right people in to try to talk to communities and not just Lumule, but anyone in northern Uganda will be able to go to this community center and get help and learn life skill because honestly, they need it. I'm Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona. And this episode is an interview made in Kaplankaya with Denis Oquera. He is a model and an activist. He's sharing his story today and will talk about his life in Uganda, where he grew up during a civil war where children were abducted to become child soldiers. His grandmother was in charge of him as his parents separated when he was young. He will tell how he escaped to London, how he was scouted to become a model, and will explain how the first thing he did when he started to earn money was to send it to his distressed community back in Lumuli, where he's helping the kids to go to school. His story was one of the favorites of the seventh season of Harvest. I hope you like it too. What was life in uh, Uganda? What were your young years like during the war? Oh, my young years. So basically, I, it was all about survival. It was a tough one uh, because you see things that you shouldn't see as a child. So these rebels formed, they called themselves the Lord Resistant Army. It was led by Joseph LRA? LRA, yeah. So load, most people call it LRA, but it stands for the Load Resistant Army. They are our same tribe, from same tribe, because Uganda has many tribes, but they are Cholis as well. And they formed their self, their intention was to liberate the Northern Ugandans from, you know, the neglect that the current Ugandan president, who he's been in power since 1986, I believe. You were in Museveni? So... They believed that he wasn't doing anything for Northern Ugandans. He completely neglected Northern Ugandans. So they wanted to liberate the, overthrow the government, 
and then make it more equal. But so the intention was not. I so think bad. the intention wasn't bad. The intention wasn't bad. Maybe people support some percentage of people. Maybe supported them when they were forming. They understood it a little bit, but then their actions in that process made people think that wait, if this is how you're treating your us, is this really? Are you guys really the right people to be leading this country? They were doing atrocities. Yeah, there was a lot of atrocities. There was a lot of looting. There was a lot of rape and stuff. So people didn't want to join their ideology. And what happened was then they started forcing people to join their ideology. So they would come into communities and find men like you're joining us. And if these men refuse This is the, the the most common one. And when you go to that part of the country, you see um, if the men didn't want to join them, they would ask them short sleeve or long sleeve. And which means short sleeve, they would cut your arm off up here. And long sleeve, they'll cut just your wrist off because they're saying you're worthless for the war, for the journey they're trying to yeah. make. You're, you're useless. So they just, they leave you if you're lucky. Although some some men obviously got shot and then they'll take your eldest son or anyone from the age of 12 onward, as long as they feel like you can be fit enough to carry looted goods and eventually you work, you prove yourself and you get a gun. So you found these young boys had to do everything possible to try to prove themselves. And it was survivors, or well, I guess, for, for them. Um, so you got young boys that did, the most awful stuff to parents. Some of them were forced to do it to their parents who didn't want to join. And this went on for years. So they would go from villages to villages to villages, like literally just looting and torturing and recruiting, falsely recruiting young boys, adults. Women got taken and raped, handed over to, this is your husband from now on. You take care of him, this and that. So you find these women just being handed out to men, young girls. This went on for years. There were landmines that, that they would put on farms or on your passage to the farms. And I remember the communities, like when you go and hide for the night, you would sleep in bushes or like with young boys like me, we would walk for hours to go and sleep next to inside a church or next to an army barracks in the evenings. But when you do sleep in bushes and you wake up, next morning you go to the garden, to the field to try to help your, your parents. Or the, in my case, my, my grandma, would, who was looking after me at the time, would take me back to the farm. But, but you're taught not to walk in the middle of the road because they would dig those roads. They're not tarmac roads. So the roads were dug down and landmine put on it. So you walk in bushes on the side passage to go to, to the farm. So how could you escape with your brother? Every day when the community felt safe, the teacher would, would ring the school bells. It was like, there's school today. And then you go. And if the rebels came during school time, teachers helped you run to hide out. Okay. Yeah. But on this occasion, they rang the bell. The rebels rang the bell. Oh. So... They tricked you, okay. Yeah, they tricked the community. The rebels rang the bell. Children 
rent to school. Not all of it, luckily. Um, I was on my way. My nan, she never normally follows me to school, but she followed me to school this day. And then she, she figured out something doesn't add up. So she's like, no, no, we're not going to school today. You come back. And then later on, we found out a lot of the kids that showed up to school got, got um, abducted. Taken away. Because the rebels rang the bell of the school. And that's when my, my grandma uh, told my aunt, and said, look, you got to take Dennis away from here because he will get abducted soon. And then my aunt came and took me from the community. And so my aunt took me from the community. She brought me to Gulu. We stayed for Gulu for a number of years. And then when my dad made his way to the UK, he was doing work cash in hand here. So he would send money so we can move from, from Gulu. And Gulu was getting really worse this time. So we moved to Jinja. We stayed in Jinja for a number of years while my dad does the paperwork to try to get us to the UK, which was tough. This went on for years. It, it was like, you know, we would go to Brit- British High Commission to get the, the visas to, to our dad and they would decline it. Several times they would decline it. Probably my dad wasn't making enough money or my dad is still uh, asylum seeking, has no right to bring us to the UK. The visas were declined three times. Dennis' dad borrowed money to hire a lawyer and was seeing MPs until they finally got visitor's visa to start. Landing in London, after so many years separated from their dad, Dennis and his brother were not even sure what he looked like. Their dad was working illegally, so the kids couldn't go to school at first. They stayed in a small bedroom all day long, looking out the window. After many months, they used the address of the girlfriends of Dennis' dad's to find a school, and that changed their life. So we would come from Bethnal Green all the way to Greenwich to study. Yeah, so you get up early morning. I think there's, uh, it was 8.30 school, so we would get up at like 6, get on a bus. We had to get, I think, three buses to come and study in Greenwich because that's our permanent. Did you like, did you enjoy I, finally I, being in a classroom? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was lovely. Being in classroom was, was lovely getting to know other kids now, finally, you know, it was good. And I think my dad told the teachers, like, you know, my boys, they've been home for a while, you know, told them the- You were a bit late. Yeah. 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 And they were, they were quite, they were quite helpful. They helped us settle, settle in. Obviously you do get odd things from other kids saying remarks, um, you know, but that didn't phase us. That didn't phase, especially me anyway, it didn't, it didn't bother me at all. You know, I'm in a country, safe. All I have to do is study and work hard and I'm not going to get abducted. I'm not, you know, suddenly going to get, even from that point, I felt like if that's all I have to do in life, just work hard. So I started studying. It's going well. And then we got temporary, moved to another temporary accommodation, which was far from Bethnal Green because this was a bed set. And they wanted us to obviously leave the building because we were overcrowded in that, okay. in that building. So they moved us to Archway Road, which was quite far from, from our school. So we had to miss school there again. And my dad told, obviously, the teachers, like, they just leave, there's family 
issues happening so they can't come to school for a little while so we moved there i think we were there for like three months and then they moved us to my land and from my land now we can get the bus to school ah, so we good. started the okay. school again yeah and then from there i remember me and my brother getting used to getting buses now so i remember I got the bus and went uh, with my brother, went to central London. I think it was bus 25. We went to central London. And then the, there was these two people that, hey, how, how are you? Uh, I was like, yeah, good, good, good. We were doing window shopping and like, hey, uh, uh, we're scouts, we're scouts for talent. We think you could be a good model. I was like, oh, okay. Said I need to talk to my dad. So I How old were you, sorry? It was about 15, 16 this time. Okay. I just... Been in London a few years and I'm thinking that I'm not going to, I didn't know what modeling was about, this, this <laughs> and that. So when I gave my dad the piece of paper, my dad just, he didn't even say anything and I didn't think anything of it. So um, I kind of knew my dad, obviously anything outside education was a complete failure to him. And then I helped a couple of friends during university. I helped them with like photo shoots here and there. They're like, hey, do you want to model my collection, this and that? And I did that and they posted it on, on Instagram. And then some of the agents asked them, said, hey, we, we really like this guy. We'd like to meet him. Could you connect us? So I had a few agents to go and see. And then I spoke with one and I felt like they wouldn't push me for jobs if I didn't, because at that time, finishing my studies was the most important thing. So I felt connected with this other agent and I said, okay, I'll sign up. At that point, I was at a stage where I'm helping my dad, my aunt's children, my cousins to school fees because I could see my dad was struggling financially as okay. well. So you were yeah. modeling on a side? On a side. Yes, yeah, so exactly. I started modeling Still doing on your studies, side. but helping your Still dad studying. for your family back in yeah. Uganda. Yeah. Okay. So I was using part of my student loan at first. I used to work in a, I started part-time job. Uh, I remember I started a part-time job working from 5.30 to 9.30 after university. And that was so tiring. And then when this modeling thing come, came on, I was like, I can give it a go. And if it's going to ease the pressure a little bit on me and my dad trying to support my aunt back in Uganda, then great. So new life for you. New life. The beginning of a new life with yeah, money. Yeah, and, uh, the yeah. beginning of a new life. So I started doing it without telling my dad. <laughs> my aunt would be like, oh, Dennis sent us school fees. And he'd be like, oh, you sent your aunt school fees already? I was like, yeah, I sent it that. And obviously this time you just think I'm just still, you know, just earning my money from the supermarket I was working in or I've got student loan or I've, or I've saved something, but it was more of the modeling. How did you cope? You were having this extremely hard life and now have access to a new world with luxury brands. How do you feel now? Sometimes I pinch myself. It's like, is this really, really happening? I really do pinch myself sometimes. But I've always known how far I've come. I, I always, I'm always aware of that. Yeah, how far, rounded. Uh, yeah. yeah, how far I have come, always. I know I'm very fortunate. I've been so lucky that I'm safe. I was able to be safe from the first time. My dad was able to get us help, someone talking to us early about the war, the safety, the this and that. When Even when we came here, we got help. I've always been grounded. I've always been so grounded. 
And, and do you feel always connected to these people, like sometimes of uh, yeah. luxury? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mean the fashion people? Fashion or? people, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love meeting new people. Like when I, I travel a lot for work and when I go to new cities, I'll be like, oh, wow. What is it like? What's the culture? What's the language? I ask first thing, like, how do you say hello? And then you find me saying hello to everyone now, unnecessary. But I like embracing new culture, um, meeting new people. Okay, so you you approach it with a curiosity. Yeah, yeah, I always approach it with an open mind and curiosity. I'm I'm always curious, always. Do you have a way to stay balanced? I would say just be true to yourself. Because if you're true to yourself, especially in this industry, if you're really true to yourself and know your purpose, no, nothing, no, no luxury or position uh, would, would let you change that. Absolutely. You have to be true to yourself. So after paying for his cousin's studies, Dennis and his aunt started to help all the community of Lumule, where now more than 800 children can go to school. When Dennis shared his story in Kaplankaya, the attendees of Harvest were really touched. Lots of them gave money and a couple even helped with the organization. His story is just uh, overwhelming, the way he was brought up, his circumstances and the, 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 his generosity and this, the complete circle around his life. So giving back to the community, everything that he learned and that he, he had from his community that was very, very touching. Denise, how was your first trip to Lumule? I went there, I remember landing in Entebbe and I, f- I feel all this weird vibration feeling like I'm home. This is, this really? is home. Okay. Yeah. I felt like this is home. This is. Um, but it's vibrating. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then I saw my aunt and it was emotional. Uh, obviously last time I see my aunt, she was packing my suitcase to come to London and I hadn't seen her since. So Going back there was, um, then she took me to, from Entebbe to Kampala and we stayed overnight to Kampala and first thing in the morning, we went all the way to Lumula. It's a long drive because it's literally landing on this part of the country and going all the way north. It's a long one day's drive. So we got to Lumula about, about 6 p.m. And then I saw this lady sitting down and I asked my aunt, I said, that, that has to be my mom. I'm sure that's my mom. There were a lot of people sitting outside waiting as well. But I pointed this lady, especially this lady, because I could just see me, my similarity and stuff from a distance. And she's like, got up, the car was still kind of rolling. I just jumped out. Wow. And we just cut at each other. It was, it was quite, it was quite. Emotional. Quite, yeah. Wow. And she's crying and she's, she's like, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm like, Mom, you don't have nothing to be sorry about. You gave me life, you know, and um, your decision uh, gave me a better life. So don't be sorry about it. So we're getting to know each other's. We're really getting to know each other's. We talk a lot every day. Good morning. 
Oh, you talk to her every day. Every day. Even even like just before I I, I came down. Yeah. (laughs) So, and I'm like, mom, I'm in Turkey. It's like, oh, what's Turkey like? And then me in my community, going to the school. At first, basically, after finishing my cousin's school fees, I told my aunt, I want to help the community now. I want to support the community. What can I do? What do they need? And he's like, well, help the school then. And I was like, okay, great. And I said, but aunt, I'm more passionate in helping young women there because I know that they have it a lot tougher. Yeah, maybe send these girls secondhand clothing and um, sanitary because girls here don't have access to sanitary. It's, sanitary is very expensive there. So they miss school during their periods and stuff. So they miss a big chunk of uh, education uh, period for every month. So I was like, okay, let's stop that. Let's, let's see how, if I can send as much sanitary as possible. So I basically would go evening to the supermarket with my trailer and be like, hey, guys, can I buy these bunch? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah take them. We're going to refill new ones. So I take them, I go and pay for it. So I would buy them in section like that, put them in barrels, ship them to Uganda. And then I was sending books and pens. Uh, so I would send secondhand clothing. I wanted to do a bit more, so much more. So I went to the schools and I spoke to the head teachers. I was like, what is the most challenging things here? And he's like, well, like you help us a lot. You know, we can't express how grateful we are for what you've been sending the schools and stuff. But one thing maybe we could work on, we need help on is to try to feed these kids something during school time. So I went the next day to spend the day in school. Um, So I I was going into classroom with the head teachers and see the condition these kids study in and then at lunchtime I saw that these kids are not eating anything they were just standing beneath a tree and not eating anything at all no lunch no lunch no food so you got 5 to 15 year old not eating anything and then the head teacher said this is our main (coughs) challenge here is we can't motivate these kids in the afternoon. Some of them, most of them disappear because they go, they go home. Too tired because they're, they're hungry. Tired. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And the one that do turn up in classroom, they'll be like, oh, I'm tired, not feeling too well. You know, I've got a headache. And it's like, if we can do something to help that a little bit. And I was like, well, a lot of the communities are farmers. Surely they have food to spare for lunch. It's like most of these farmers here prioritize selling their produce to pay for school fees, for uniforms, for medicine, for things like that. Most of their crops are sold once, once it's harvested and they're only able to feed their children once a day, in, which is in the evening after school. I was like, well, it's something we can, we can definitely work on. So they needed a kitchen. They need a kitchen. With, to make like a canteen? To, or, to make yeah. a canteen. Yeah, to make a canteen. And I was like, let's start by building a kitchen. And then I'll get a chef and some helpers to come and make basic breakfast and lunch. At least they, they will eat something during school time. So I, I would pay the cost of food for the next six months. And I would pay obviously the chef. But after that six months, these parents, what they've done is they've donated land to the school and they're growing crops 
for the school. They want the school to be self-sustainable on this That's school good. meal okay. program. Okay. They want to be able to take it on their own and not relying on me helping funding, sourcing food. You're paying with uh, everything with your salary or you're raising money or? To be honest, I put a GoFundMe page in November. So I, I, I was quoted 24K to build this kitchen. The price has gone up since then. But I've, only, I've managed to raise seven and a half, seven, 7,700 out of the 24, which was honestly, it goes a, a, a long way. Goes a long way, so I'm grateful for it. So, what's the next step? I want to rebuild the school uh, because the classroom condition that these kids study in is really tough. The existing buildings that still have the roof on, they have bullet holes on the walls. So you've got these kids studying in conditions like that, and some of the buildings were burnt down during the war, completely destroyed, and they need putting down and rebuilding a new one. But it's just these kids studying in these classrooms is it's quite heartbreaking because a lot of these kids now are children of former child soldiers. Main aim is to help rebuild the school so these the kids don't have to see that condition while they're studying. I know they'll, they'll still go home to broken homes, but while they're At least. in school, let them have a good studying peaceful condition, moment, yeah. peaceful moment. And a better future. And a better future. The other thing is once the school is finished, I hope to build a community center where bring the right people in to try to talk to communities and not just Lumule, but anyone in Northern Uganda will be able to go to this community center and get help and learn life skill because honestly, they need it. We'll um, end this interview, Dennis, with um, the harvest of the day. It's mm -hmm. uh, the question I'm uh, asking to everyone. What is the one thing that gives you hope? One thing that gives me hope is, is the ability of others who are fighting for the same thing. There's so many young people now who are interested, like Harvest community, they're interested to hear about my life story and my community in Uganda. And that, that, that gives me hope that there's people that actually care about the condition other parts of the world are living in. Thank you so much for being here in the podcast room and sharing your beautiful story. My pleasure. Bye, Denise. See you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode and Denise Aguera's story. How he was raised during a terrible civil war in Uganda. How he became a model And the first thing he did when he started earning money was to help the school back in Lumule. If you did, please leave us a good review and follow us on Instagram, Harvest Series. All of our podcasts are also filmed, so you can also visit youtube.com slash harvest series. Next episode will be with Jason Nemer. He's an acrobat and co-founded a super fun practice called Acro Yoga. Don't miss the episode. Until next time... <laughs>